right, well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good to be here with you this morning. I want to take a minute and just say hello to everybody who is joining us online, all of our family online, wherever you are watching from, and a special shout out to our family at Upshur County Jail. Come on, let's tell them how much we love them. We love you so much. Grateful that you're with us today. Uh, We are in a series on the book of James. How many of you have enjoyed this series so far? All right, now how many of you have been challenged by this series so far? Yeah, I get a lot of feedback on it, and uh, it, they mean it positive, but they're like, oh, that was tough, Pastor. And I'm like, yeah, you're telling me. I've been, <laughs> I've been confronted with it all week normally, so uh, just know I'm being challenged as well. Today, uh, though, I'm going to have someone else step in and give you James chapter 4 today, and he is uh, a guest in some ways because he doesn't live here and he doesn't go to church here. He has a church in Tyler But in many ways, he's not a guest because he grew up in this church, uh, he has taught in this church, he has been on staff at this church, and he's my brother. So he's he's like family, really. Um, We're we're pretty close. So he's a great teacher of God's word, and especially when it comes to breaking down scripture. So I know that you are going to be encouraged today. So would you join me and give a great big NCC welcome to my brother, Matthew Warnock. Thank you so much. Good morning, NCC. Everybody doing good today? Isn't it just, just nothing like being in, uh, in church with the people of God, you know? Uh, nothing like it, even when you're not at your local church, per se. Uh, it's a church family, and that's one of the coolest things about being a part of the body of Christ, is that wherever you go, you've got family, and especially you guys are my family, and it's always a joy to be back uh, and, and get to see you guys and catch up with so many of you, and it's a joy, of course, to open the Word of God together. So like Pastor Stephen said, you've been in James, and so we're going to be in James chapter 4 today, so I invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles or, or click them there if you're using it digitally to James 4. And actually, the last verse, we're going to start the last verse of chapter 3, 18, and then read through the first 10 verses of chapter 4. Read with me, please. James 3, 18, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we just thank you so much for being present 
among us today. Thank you for your faithfulness to always meet us where we are. And we ask, Lord, as we uh, open up your word, ask Holy Spirit that you would uh, illuminate our minds, Lord. Help us to understand the things that you want us to know. Lord, open our hearts to the things that you want to do inside of us, that you would do a great work in each and every one of us today, God. I pray, Lord, that you would remove any barrier, any hindrance right now to your divine communication, that when we leave here today, we will be able to say one to another, surely the Lord has spoken to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as you guys know, you've been going through James, and the book of James is a very practical book, right? And the uh, question that it asks and answers is, if you really believe the basic message of Jesus, then what will that look like practically in your life? What fruit will that produce? And especially here in this passage, what kind of community that creates among the people of God, those who believe the gospel? And, And this community aspect uh, has kind of been in the, in the background so far up in, in, in the book of James. But here in this passage, it really comes to the forefront. And so we're going to look at three points today from this passage. Number one, the importance of believing community. Number two, the main barriers to that community. And number three, how do we break through those barriers to realize this kind of community that uh, James is, is talking about here? Uh, so number one, the importance of community. It may not be the first thing that strikes you here as you're reading, but look at verse 18. I started in in verse 18 of chapter 3 because it's kind of a continuing thought there. He says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And here, James likens righteousness, okay, which means in, in different places, the word can mean either just being set right with God or sometimes just being set right with other people. But here, James uses the full meaning of the word, which means both, being set right with God and with other people, okay? So basically, you get set right with God, that produces supernatural character, character change in your life, so then you're set right in relationship with other people as well. And so he likens that, we see, to a seed. He says, peacemakers who sow right? Reap a harvest of righteousness. And what is the seed for a supernaturally changed life? Peacemaking. And so we see in this, in this passage, in this context, peacemaking, you, we, we know we usually think of it like just two people who get in a conflict and they make up, right? Peacemaking. But here it means creating a peaceful community, a harmonious community. And so verse 18, he's really getting at this idea like he has to a more subtle degree before this, that your life will not change, truly. That God really can't do all the work he wants to do in your life apart from deep involvement in community. A community of peace and harmony and righteousness, right? God's community. And so we have to stop here, I think, uh, before we go any further and kind of talk about this for a minute. Uh, we, We just have to because of the society we live in. You guys know it. We live in one of the most individualistic societies in the history of the world. And so this idea has just kind of been pounded into us uh, that you are who you determine to be. You make your own way. You choose whatever you want to be. But most societies in the world and almost all social scientists and the Bible tell us that's not true, that that's an illusion, that that's fiction. Instead, they tell us that you are basically the product of your family and your culture. 
and therefore you're basically the product of your primary community, the people that you eat with, do life with, work with, play with, talk with, counsel with, okay? So for example, uh, social scientists will tell you, and we, we really don't like to hear this, but they tell us that our beliefs are much more a product of relationships than rationality, than reason. So basically, you find beliefs to be the, the most reasonable and plausible, mainly if they are communicated and articulated by people you like, or people who you admire, or people who admire you, okay? And so to a great degree, your beliefs are not really the product so much of your reasoning as much as we think as they are your relationships. And we really don't like to believe that because we like to think, oh, you know, I, I'm, I'm super reasonable, but there's all sorts of proof. <laughs> and so, you know, for just one small example, you start out in teenage years, and you say, I'm never going to be like my parents, right? I hate this about them. Why do they do this? And, and I think when, when, when we're in our 20s, we still kind of cling to that illusion for a while. Uh, but then eventually we all get to the place where the older you get, you realize you are to an enormous degree. Like those people you said you'd never be like, right? Good or bad. Why is that? Because that's just the way human beings are. It's the way God made us in community, relational beings, okay? So you essentially become like your primary social community. And what James is trying to get across, and many places in the Bible get across this idea that there is no character change, there's no growth, really, without deep involvement in community. And by the way, uh, I'll just say this, Sunday morning services like this, as wonderful and helpful and necessary as they are, this is not deep involvement in community. You cannot do the things, all the things that the Bible admonishes us to do. You cannot bear with one another, forgive one another, honor one another, pray for one another, all those things. You can't do it staring at somebody's head, back of their head for an hour, right? It's not possible. So you, you, have, to, you have to go further. You have to take an extra step. That's why there's things like small groups, just to create an avenue for that to really begin to happen. So if you want real spiritual growth, you have to be involved in community. But another thing is this. Look at verse 1. James here at the beginning is dealing with some issues, and he's not pulling any punches. He never does. But what is he upset about? He's upset about the fights going on in the church. And so there's two ways to fail, we see, at being part of good Christian community. Number one is to not seek it, or to just be indifferent towards it, or too busy for it. But the other is to get into it, but then fight, <laughs> to, to cause divisions and, and controversies and all these kinds of things. Either way, you're failing at community. But look at what he says about the fighting in verse 4. He says, you adulterous people. Whew. Okay, we'll get back to that actually in a little bit. I know you're excited about that. Uh, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity, or that word means hatred, against God. Very strong language from James here. So what's he talking about? What is friendship with the world here? It's the fighting. That's how the world lives. And what is hatred towards God? It's the fighting in the Christian community. Why? Jesus tells us a couple different places. In John, for example, Jesus says that the number one tool I'm giving you to show the world who I am is the 
beauty and depth of your love for one another. And so if you fail to be a part of creating this kind of Christian community, either by indifference or by fighting division, it's hating God. That's what he's saying. I I honestly don't know how to read, how else to read that, verses 1 through 4 here. It's trampling on the main thing God has given us to show the world who he is. It's so essential. The Bible tells us how crucial this kind of community we get to be a part of is. We should not take it for granted. So number two then, what are the barriers to creating this kind of community? What are these reasons that what James tells us here? And there's actually two causes listed here in the passage. Uh, one is the cause, and one, uh, I'm going to say, is the cause of the cause. It's the root cause, okay? So two causes. The first one is in verse 2. He says, you desire something, but you do not have. So you covet, and you quarrel, and you fight. Now, that looks pretty simple. You desire, you want something, but the, the word there, the Greek word there is hedone, and it's where we get our word hedonism, and what it means is you please yourselves, okay? So he's saying your comfort, your convenience, your control is more important than anybody else's. Your needs are more important, in other words, than the people around you. And honestly, that's all it takes for us. It's just to put ourselves first, right? And so this, this seems pretty simple. I mean, you, you might be tempted to say, okay, Matthew, tell me something important. I know that. But this is so key. Essentially, because we please ourselves, because I would rather put my comfort and my convenience, right, in my natural state. That's just the way it is. It's about number one, okay? Because I would rather put me above those around me. That's the reason for the community breakdown. That's the reason for not realizing this kind of community. Uh, There was this little book uh, written years ago by this guy named Thomas Howard, and it's called uh, Splendor in the Ordinary. And it's a great little book, and he says that what's wrong with us at this point is wrong, he says, 100 times a day. (laughs) It's in ordinary life, basically, where we either catch this or we lose this. And he makes a reference to another really famous writer in the 19th century uh, named George MacDonald. And George MacDonald is famous for saying, the one principle of hell is, I am my own. And so Thomas Howard went on and basically was explaining that. And he said that there's basically two ways to live. Okay? One is, my life for yours, or I am my own, so my life for me. And he says, you have a hundred opportunities every single day to live either on the basis of my life for yours, your needs above mine, or my life for me, my needs above yours. And he shows how this works. So he says, for example, no child has ever received life except through the laying down of the mother's life in bearing and nourishing him. And somebody has to lay down their life to care for children year after year. We only live because someone has lived by this principle, the laying down of a life. So, I mean, us parents, come on, we know this, right? The only reason you're here is because your parents for about 18 years, hopefully only for about 18 years, (laughs) they basically kiss their lives goodbye. They kiss their convenience goodbye, kiss their time, certainly kiss their money goodbye. Can I get an amen? somebody. They laid down their life, their life for yours. 
He goes on and says, this laying down of life always entails a death. He says, it's death in effect to my 10 minutes when I give them over to help you get something done. It's death to your privilege if you let someone else in urgent need cut in line in front of you. The my life for yours principle is the only one on which any life at all is possible. To embrace it is to live, but to refuse it, my life for me, is to spiritually die and spread death. There it is, heaven or hell, lurking in your living room. And see, he's right, because in heaven, everybody loses their independence. You realize that? Everybody will be, they're just joyfully all the time deferring to one another, serving, giving. No, you, please, no, you, you, honoring one another, glorifying one another. But in hell, everybody says, I don't need anything. Don't ask anything of me. <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs> I didn't say it. She said it. You realize how, why, it, why that is, though? It's so, I mean, that's hell. It's the loneliest part of the universe. I don't want anything. I got it on my own. So the breakdown of community is that we want to we please ourselves first, right? But then where does that come from? Where does that principle come from? What's the root cause? Well, the cause of the cause is pride. That's what we see. Verse 6, God opposes the proud. Verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord. So the solution is humility. Therefore, the reason for the community breakdown is pride. Another famous writer, Jonathan Edwards, uh, he's one of my favorite. He's the, he's the great, famous uh, Puritan pastor and theologian in colonial America. He wrote a little book called Thoughts on Revival. And the reason he wrote it is because he saw two or three revivals in his time. A revival is a time where the church is growing and lots of people are coming to God and lives are being changed and the community is wonderful and flourishing. And what Edwards observed is that every time that their revival was over, it was because of fighting. He says fights and quarrels and controversy erupted and it killed the revival. Two or three times he noted this. And so he wrote a little book and he decided that the thing that kills community and revival more than anything else is spiritual pride. And in the middle of the book, he describes it, what, what spiritual pride is, some symptoms of it for quite some time. And so I want to share some of them with you because I think they're so powerful and there's a great just little self-reflection time, I think, for all of us if we're really going to do what James tells us to do here. So I paraphrase them. Uh, and, and gave him some titles as best I could, because he wrote in the 18th century, so it's kind of hard to read. But here's six things that I'll, I'll share. He calls marks of spiritual pride and therefore spiritual humility as well. Number one, he says, is spiritual pride includes fault-finding. Spiritual pride makes you more aware of others' faults than you are of your own. But humility makes you far more aware of your own faults than those of others. Number two, arrogance. Pride leaves you, when you do speak of others' faults, to have an air of contempt, like you're better. I'm just looking, oh, how dare they do that? But humility means that when you do speak of others' faults, you only ever do it with grief and mercy. 
Number three, neglecting others. Pride leads you to quickly separate from people you criticize or who criticize you. You're cold to them or you avoid them, but humility means you stick with people even through difficult relationships. You don't give up on them. Number four, uh, dogmatism. A proud person is dogmatic and sure about every point of belief because proud people, he says, cannot distinguish between major and minor points of belief because they believe that everything is major. And they have to be right about everything, is what he says. Number five, unhealthy confrontation. A, pers- a proud person either loves to confront because they love winning. I kind of struggle with that one. Uh, loves to confront because they love winning. Or they never confront because they don't want criticism and controversy. Right? Either one. But a humble person confronts necessarily when they have to. Only for the good of the person because they love that person. So he says if you overlove confronting or if you underlove, like you, you just avoid it no matter what, even if the, it's going to hurt the person, he says it's not humility, it's pride. And then the last one is very interesting because I think we understand some of these like arrogance and that's a pretty self, self-explanatory one. But number six, he says a mark of spiritual pride is self-pity. A proud person is often unhappy and sorry for himself. Proud people are filled with self-pity because, A, they're so sure they know how life really ought to go, but it's not. Or, B, they're sure they deserve a good life, and so they're mad that maybe it's not. But a humble person says, I deserve to be cast off, but it's only by God's grace that I'm living. And they say, I don't know what's best for me. God does. So proud people are always filled with self-pity and are unhappy, and humble people very seldom are, and they almost have no air of self-pity. So how are we doing? (laughs) You see how one is, is, is my life for me and one is my life for you? So how do we, what do we do about this? How do we break through these barriers, okay? Well, we see, obviously, that James tells us the key to a successful community is humility. We see that. So how do we do that? How do we humble ourselves? And right away, we need to see something that I hope maybe you've already begun to see already. And that is that what we call humility today is not really what the Bible calls humility. Okay? Because when we think of a humble person, what we think of someone really shy, you know, not very self-assertive. Oh, you know, Oh, don't worry about little old me, you know, I'm just, a, I'm, I'm just a worm, I'm the scum of the earth, okay? That's not what it is. That's not what we see here at all, actually. Look at this. Look at verses 6 and 7. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, so submit yourself to God. And what's the very next thing? Resist the devil. Okay, look at this. The devil, think about that. The devil is the most powerful evil being out there. As far as evil is concerned, like he's the head honcho, right? So to say, be humble and don't you dare be afraid of the devil, resist him. What James is saying is if I don't want you to be afraid of the devil, I don't want you to be afraid of anything, right? But see, we we think that doesn't seem to go along with being humble. Uh, I mean, uh, Moses, not Pharaoh, Moses went to Pharaoh. Okay, if you know the story, Moses went to Pharaoh in the Old Testament, and he said, let my people go. Now, let me put that into context for us, okay? Moses walked into the palace of the biggest, baddest, most powerful person on the face of the planet at that time, 
and said, I want you to let your entire free labor force, which is the, the foundation of your economic and military superiority, I want you to let them go and I want you to do it right now, unconditionally, without any sort of compensation. And then it says, the Bible says that Moses was the humblest man on the face of the earth. You see, why? Because Moses was not courageous and bold in spite of being humble. Moses was courageous and bold because he was humble. Because here's what the Bible means by humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Oh, I'm just nothing. No, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. It's just not even thinking about yourself. You're not so focused on yourself all the time. Why? Because inside, you are supremely confident in your worth and your value to God and the fact that He is in charge of the circumstances of your life. That's the key right there. See, what is cowardice? When you're cowardly, what is that? It, it's thinking about yourself. It's being focused. Well, what if this happens? What if I fail? What, what are they going to think? Blah, 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 blah. What is courage? It's forgetting about yourself altogether. It's being concerned about others. It's like, I don't care. God's got this. Whatever. Why is a humble person able to forgive so easily and be gracious when someone attacks them? Because I don't care. I know who I am. <laughs> I know who's, who's in charge of my life. I can handle it. It's not a lack of confidence. It's incredible inner confidence. But see, a proud person who doesn't have that confidence, a proud person is, is always feeling snubbed, always feeling offended, always feeling like they're not getting their rights. You can't talk to me that way. And that's the reason why proud people are not gracious. They're not forgiving, always having meltdowns about how people are treating them. But humble people are kind, and there's, there's forgiveness, there's poise, there's patience. They're not filled with self-pity. So humility, really, we see, is this incredible inner confidence because you know inside how valuable and worthwhile you are to God, and you are trusting in the fact that He is taking care of all the circumstances of your life. So how do we get that? Okay, that's what humility is, and that's what you need. That's what we, we really need in order to create the kind of community that, that James and the rest of the Bible talk to us about. How do we get it? The rest of chapter 4 gives us two things you've got to have, and they're huge things because they basically summarize pretty much the entire rest of the Bible. So let me show you what they are. You can have this kind of growing humility to the degree that you know these two things. Number one, the enormity of God's love for you. And number two, the upside-down principle of God's kingdom that's really at the heart of the universe. Okay, number one, the enormity of God's love. Look at verse four. James says, you adulterous people. I said we'd get back to that. I know, I'm sorry. Uh, what, what does he mean by that? The reason that the translators do not give a literal translation there is because it would be confusing. Because what he actually literally writes is, you adulteresses, okay? So he's speaking to men and women, to a church, but he deliberately calls them, the, the feminine, adulteresses. Why? Because he's tapping in here to one of the great themes of the Bible. And that is 
that God does not just love us the way a shepherd loves his sheep. He does, but not just that way. Or not even just the way that a father loves his children. But God loves us the way a husband loves his wife. And so when we sin, James is saying, it's spiritual adultery. When we turn, we turn our back on God. That's what it is. And, and so that's what this kind of cryptic verse 5 means that without trying to untangle it completely. When he's talking about uh, God being jealous and envying for us. You know, when, when humans, we talk about jealousy and envy, it's usually filled with negative things, negative connotations. Uh, but when jealousy and envy is used for God, it means that he's longing for your love the way that a husband longs for the love of his wife. That's incredible. That's amazing. That's how God loves you. That's how God comes after you, <laughs> the way that a husband wants to love his wife with all that he is. But that's not all. That's just one little way that James is, is locking into one of the big storylines of the Bible here. The other way is this. When, God sa- when it says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, when he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up, this is the upside down principle of God's kingdom that we see over and over throughout the Gospels. And it's at the very heart of the universe. Over and over again, we see the Bible says this. It says, like we see here, that those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who try to exalt themselves will be humbled, right? It says the first will be last, the last will be first. Uh, Whoever would find his life will lose it, but he who will lose his life for my sake will find it. What does that mean? What is that talking about? It means that if you lay down your life for God, if you say, I'm going to follow God no matter what, I don't care what it costs me, I'm going to give all, everything I have over to God. If you lay down your life for other people a hundred times a day, you die to your own power, you die to your own convenience. If you lay down your life for God and for other people, you will get your life back forever. A million times over, you'll get it back. You'll find what life is really all about. But if you try to hold on to your power, if you try to hold on to your safety, if you say, I don't want to serve other people, I want them to serve me, my life for me, then we'll become more and more like Satan. And our life will become more and more like hell. Because <laughs> that's what it is. He who would find his life will lose it, but he will lose his life will find it. The way up is down. The way down is up. The way to have true power is to give your power away and to serve. And the way to feel eternally great about yourself is to admit that you're a hopeless sinner and you need God and repent and say, God, you have every right to cast me off, but because of Jesus, you accept me. And once you really know that, once you really believe that that's true, that he has done that in Christ, to the degree that you understand that, that is the beginning of humility. That is the beginning of this thing that enables you to forgive, that enables you to have courage, that enables you to lay down your life for other people and enables all of us, as a result of that, to walk in this beautiful thing called community, the body of Christ. And, and by the way, let me just say this too. When I say this is at the heart of the universe, I mean it. 
Like it's at the heart of, the, heart of history. Why? Think about this. Before there was anything in the world, we're told, Jesus tells us the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What have they been doing for all of time? Jesus tells us they've been loving one another, serving one another, glorifying one another. What does it mean to glorify? It means to honor one another, serve one another, defer to one another, love one another. And that's the reason, okay? That is the inner life of the Trinity. So that's the reason why the only kind of life that can be had is this kind of life, my life for yours. It's the only basis on which life can actually, true life can actually be lived. Right? Thomas Howard was right in that book. Basic life, even in this broken world, <laughs> can't work without that. You can't even be born and be raised unless somebody lays down their life for you. But because, of course, sin is what? Sin is, I am my own, right? I want to be in charge. I want to be my own boss. I don't want to serve God. I want to call the shots. I want, to, I want to make the decisions. And that's where all the brokenness comes from. That's where all the injustice, all the wars, all the family breakdowns, everything stems from that. That's sin. But what has God done? You see, in Christ, we see my life for yours in the ultimate. We see the greatest act of humility in the history of the world. God himself comes to earth. He leaves his glory behind. Uh, Romans 15 says that you should bear with one another and, and serve one another and not please yourselves because Christ did not please himself. I mean, and what an understatement that is, right? And so I understand this is a lot that James is giving us, right? You may be, at this point, you may be thinking, man, that's a, I, I get that. I hear you. I believe you. But this, my life for your stuff, that sounds awfully hard. <laughs> I don't know that I can do that, right? But look at, look at this. Look at verse 6. What does it say? He gives more grace. What does that mean? Jesus lived out verses 6, 7, and 8 for you. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus resisted the devil. He lived out verses 6 and 7 in your place. And then in verse 8, when he sought to draw near to God, God did not draw near to him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he sensed God's absence and then he went to the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? What was the penalty? What's the penalty for us saying, my life is my own? I don't need God separation. Cosmic loneliness. And that's the penalty. That's, that's the natural fair consequence. And on the cross, Jesus Christ got that loneliness for you. So that now, if you try to draw near to God imperfectly, you try to humble yourself imperfectly, you try to serve others and resist the devil imperfectly, he will draw near to you. Yeah, that's incredible. That's what Jesus has done. And so let me close with this, John 17. This is, I think, the one place where this really all comes together because this is what I've been alluding to. Jesus says this in John 17. He's praying a couple places. Verse 4 first. He says, I have brought you glory praying to the Father on earth. 
by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Go down to verse 22. I have given them, that's the disciples, that's us, the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. See, that's what James is encouraging them towards. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me because you loved me before the creation of the world, even as you loved me. Do you see that? You see it all coming together now? Jesus laid his life, my life for years. He proved that this is the way we should all live. He humbled himself and then he was lifted up. And here's how, if you will humble yourself, you'll know this. Okay? Because of what Jesus has done, when you believe that in Christ, in Jesus, not on your own, but in Christ, that God loves you even as he loves Jesus. Think about that. How much does the Father love the Son? How much glory does the Son deserve for all that he's done? That's what you get in Christ. Let that sink into your heart today. Let that sink in, into who you are until it really changes who you are. Until, until this confidence of your real value and worth to God. What is value? How much somebody is willing to pay for something? How much did God pay for? How much did God pay to get you? Once you know your inner confidence and worth before God and you really trust because of that love that He is working all things together for your good, no matter what. When that starts to grow in you, that's when you really start to get real spiritual humility. And that's when you can really serve one another. Reflect on this, would you? And then I'm going to pray. I read one time, this is beautiful, that, that this really should be the language of the Christian's heart. We ask ourselves, why should I be selfish when I am full of real wealth and love? Why should I be defenseless when all charges against me have been dismissed by the real judge? Why should I be offended when I have the love of the king of the universe? And why should I begrudge giving forgiveness when I am awash in Christ's forgiveness now? Humble yourself before the Lord, church, and he will lift you up. Would you pray with me? Let's just take a minute before we go any further, before we leave. This is really the most important part of the service. We just want to ask ourselves, God, what are you saying to me right now? Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? And he, he may, he's probably already been speaking to you in this service. What is he saying? What's your response? Maybe it's just a, it's a, a perspective shift that God needed to give you today. Maybe it's an action step. There's some reconciliation maybe that needs to happen in community. Maybe it's a... Maybe you're here today and you need to humble yourself before God for the very first time. You say, man, I've been resisting God and it's time. It's time to surrender. I need His grace. I need His love and I need to give everything over to Him. Don't neglect whatever it is He's telling you today. Today is the day. If that is you, our prayer team is going to be down here at the 
at the end of the service. You make that decision today. But whatever it is, you say, I'm going to do it today. That's what James is all about. I'm going to respond to the faith that's working in me through Christ. So, Father, I pray that you would. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us all to be involved in this kind of community that you said would really show the world who you are. Help us to be that wherever we are, God, the light of the world. But we know often, Lord, because of our pride, because of our lack of trust, that we can become hardened, that we can maybe be more affected by the world than we should be. Lord, help us to to humble ourselves before you. Thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of your word working in us. Pray, Lord, that you would affect this in every single one of us more and more, God, so that we could be like your son who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life away. And it's in Jesus' mighty, wonderful, beautiful name we all pray. Amen and amen. Praise the Lord. Thanks for joining us today. I pray this message encouraged you, inspired you, and maybe even challenged you a little bit. If you made a decision for Jesus, we are celebrating with you. Welcome to the family of God. We would love to know about it. So message us online or you can text yes card to 903-200-3808 and let us know what decision you made. We wanna come alongside you, help you find a local church. It's very important to be connected to the local body of Christ, whether with us or somewhere else. So let us know so we can help you and let you know your next steps with Jesus. I'd love to see you real soon in person, but until then, know that I'm praying for you. I'm praying God's best in your life. God bless you.